I heard a story one time of a man who was outside in his yard and up came wandering a black dog astray. And his kids, in their excitement, ran to the dog, wrapped their arms around the dog's neck, loved it and kissed it and named it. Of course, what could the man do? The dog had adopted his family. So he took it in and his children fed it and they took care of it every day. But gradually the dog became more of a nuisance than man's best friend. He started digging up the flowers, chewing up the garden hose. All the shoes were destroyed. But worse than that, he started biting the neighborhood kids when they would come over. He started being a pest and someone that they couldn't keep around because he was a liability, really, to them. So one day the kids got on the school bus and they went off to school and the man decided he had to do what only father could do. He loaded the dog up in the back of his truck. He drove out into the country. He let the dog out of the truck and he took off as fast as he could. <laughs> on his way home, he took every angle and every turn he possibly could think of. He took every roundabout and every back road and every way he could possibly wonder so that the dog could, there's no way the dog could possibly ever follow him. He turns the corner and drives up to his house, and there on his porch is that black dog. Will not leave him alone. We have a passage that is in front of us this morning, which seems to be on the surface somewhat obscure. It's 11 verses, and it's David inquiring of the Lord, going to a place called Hebron, sending a letter to someone, a group of people, out in the middle of nowhere, and then another person becoming king. What could this possibly have to say? I've actually heard from some of you. Some of you said, I read 2 Samuel chapter 2. And I don't know how you're going to preach that. What could that possibly have to say to us in a New Testament community? I don't want us to miss the fact that on the very, at the very root of this passage, what is happening here is that David is being crowned king. Don't let that escape your notice because it is very important. How important is it? We'll look in verse 4. Then look at verse 7. And then look at verse 11. The author tells you three times in 11 verses, David was king. Do you think it's important? It's important. That's what he wants you to know. So I don't want you to miss the fact that this is the coronation of God's king. But I want you to understand the significance of that. Go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, 
We have man and woman created in perfect harmony with God. They're placed in the Garden of Eden. And what do they do? But they sin against God. And in disobedience, they take a bite of the fruit. And in walks that black dog of sin that just continues to follow them around no matter where they go. And try as they might to shake the presence of this black dog, it is going to be there wherever they are. God gives them promises. He brings Noah along. Noah's name sounds like the word for rest. And his father even cries out, this is the one, Noah is the one that's going to give us rest. And what do we see? But that God starts over and preserves Noah and his family and he gives them the same commission that he gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Noah, you're the one that's going to relieve the burden of the curse. And Noah gets drunk and curses his child. It's not Noah. Abraham, Abraham comes along. You're the one, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham takes many chapters before he learns to actually trust the Lord. On and on and on we go, we get promise after promise after promise. And the people of Israel go, we want a king. And finally God gives them a king and it looks like just the right person. He's tall and he's handsome and he's strong and he's mighty and he is not the one that needs to lead them. But finally, God's anointed king has arrived. David is here and he is crowned king. There's promise there's hope. There's a future. Everyone, at least in Judah, is now going, hey, the one that God anointed, the one that God handpicked, God's literally, the Hebrew word Messiah, God's anointed one, is here and he's coming to save us. What is he coming to save us from? From everything. From the curse of the fall from having no hope and no future, from not being led to righteousness, from all of it. He's coming to save us. So surely we have hope in David. You understand, the way we've been reading First and Second Samuel is that David is the seed of God's kingdom. He's not what God will ultimately establish in his kingdom, when he brings it to the full. David is but a seed. He's the beginning of it. The impetus behind studying First and Second Samuel, and during the summers we go through ten psalms. For those of you that are visiting with us, you may not know that pattern that we have, but during the summers we pause whatever study we have and we do ten psalms, and then we pick it back up in the fall. And the impetus behind going to First and Second Samuel and reading through the Psalms and studying the Psalms, spending, by the time we get through with 2 Samuel, we spent 25 sermons in 1 Samuel. We'll spend another 25 probably in 2 Samuel. We'll be done right at Christmas with 2 Samuel, taking a break in the summer for the Psalms, 
spending a year and a half, maybe a little more, in the Old Testament, not even counting the summers, why would we do that? Why would we spend that much time there? And the reason is because we want to see over and over and over again, I want to pound home 50 times through First and Second Samuel, that David is the kernel, the seed that's going into the ground, that God is planting in the ground, that eventually is going to give rise to the fullness of his kingdom brought to us in Christ. So every sermon, every text, everything that we read in the Old Testament, its design is to point us to its ultimate fulfillment, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you're going to hear me 50 straight times in First and Second Samuel, all throughout the Psalms, you're going to hear me coming back to the gospel that we believe in a New Testament age. And so you're looking at this passage in 1 to 11 going, what could this possibly have to say to me, the Christian? But remember, a Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament is not just a way to read the Old Testament text. It is the way to read the Old Testament text. Well, how do we know that? Well, Jesus himself says in Luke 24, 27, on the road to Emmaus, he opens the disciples' eyes and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He tells a crowd in John 5, 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You're probably thinking, what, Moses wrote of Jesus? That doesn't make sense. Moses didn't even know the name Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. He lived a thousand plus years before Jesus. How could he possibly write of Jesus? 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Do you see promises in the Old Testament? Are you reading through the Old Testament text and looking at promises that God made? Paul is telling us in the New Testament text, all of those promises are pointing ultimately to find their yes in Christ. In other words, every single passage that you read about in your Bibles, New or Old Testament, rightly understood, points to Jesus so here we have this text where God's king is being crowned. And there's a whole host of people that are rejecting it. Think about David's life up to this point. He's been running from Saul. Ever since he was anointed and gained a little bit of notoriety, Saul has tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, tried to kill him several times. He's run He's had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he wouldn't lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. And finally, at the end of 1 Samuel, we see Saul's death. Just following that, everybody's tempted to celebrate. David brings them back in and says, no, no, that's not how we're going to handle this. We are going to mourn and lament as we truly should the one that was anointed by God to be king over this country. God didn't mess up, in other words. He put him here on the throne, and we're going to mourn his death. And then right after that, David is done with the mourning of Saul. We're moving on from that, and he's going to take the throne of being king. And wouldn't you know, it should be all downhill from here, shouldn't it? 
Shouldn't we ride downhill? It's, it's, it's an easy coast now. David is going to be crowned king and, and there's nothing left to do. No, David goes from running from Saul and hiding in obscurity to civil war in a nation. Well, God, God, this isn't how your servant is supposed to be treated. I don't think. I've been crowned king. Shouldn't everybody now go, okay, out with Saul, on to David. No, that's not what you get. What you get instead is a nation completely and utterly divided, and Judah is the only one going with David. Actually, the minority is going with David, and the rest of the tribes united to the north. But what if I told you that this passage is about man's habit of rejecting God's reign over them, and how you and I often fall prey to the very same desires that are present here in this text with Abner. That that ultimately is what this passage is really about. Do you remember Psalm 2? David is writing, and we don't know the circumstances of David's writing this psalm, but it's attributed to him. We don't know the circumstances, but I, I, I could bet that it was circumstances like this. Remember how he starts it? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The rulers of the earth set themselves. And the kings take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let's burst their bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. It's exactly what this passage is showing. Here is God's king being crowned king over all. He's coming to the fore, taking his throne, and what do we find but an entire nation rejecting him? I want you to see this in this text as we think about how this passage could possibly apply to us. And what I want you to see first is that God's king, the king, leads by divine guidance. That God's king, the king, leads by divine guidance. Look at how David seeks the Lord in verses 1 to 4. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, Hebron should sound familiar to you. If you've read the Old Testament at all, the town of Hebron is actually quite important. And the reason we find its importance is because of Genesis 23. That's when Abraham, shortly after being told to sacrifice Isaac and being spared, his wife Sarah dies and he goes to the Hittites and he buys Hebron from the Hittites. And there he buries Sarah. Later, Abraham is also buried there. Following that, Isaac and Rebekah are buried there. 
Following that, Jacob and Leah are buried there. Think about the significance of this for just a second. The most significant three people in Jewish history are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those three people are dead right now. Let me ask you a question. Why are they dead? Well, the answer might be obvious. I don't know what the exact disease was or illness was or maybe it was just old age. I don't know exactly what it was, but they died like everybody else died. No, no, no. Why do they die? They die because of the curse of the fall. That's what was given to us back in Genesis chapter 3. And where are they now? They're buried under the ground at Hebron. And so here comes David, who is now God's anointed king, his Messiah, coming to take the throne. And where does he stand? He stands in Hebron on top of the dead bodies of all those that came before him, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you think there is a better symbol of hope coming to humanity than that? Do you think there is a better message from God to all the people that this man is coming to undo all of the things that came before? Is there any way he could communicate any stronger of a message that his anointed Messiah is coming to undo the curse of the fall than to bring David here to Hebron and there crown him? Now, I know what you might be thinking. Anoint him king? That, that he comes to, in verse 4, he comes to Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, this is the second time David has had oil poured on his head. He's already been anointed. Why they got to anoint him again? Well, when he was anointed the first time, he is clearly, that was a sign that God had chosen him. It was a sign from the prophet Samuel. God has chosen you to be the heir apparent. But David was just that. He was the heir apparent. Saul was still the king on the throne. And it took many, many years before Saul was ever dead. Before David was ever had a legitimate claim to the throne. But now that Israel's king is dead, the house of Judah is proclaiming in a loud voice. In no uncertain terms, David, you are king over us. Our allegiance is sworn to you. Remember back at the beginning of 1 Samuel, Samuel is chosen as a prophet who hears from God while Eli is still the priest. So Samuel still has to serve under Eli, even though God is speaking to Samuel and not to Eli. So th this is a pattern going on throughout time for God's people. David was serving under Saul, and now he is uh, taking the throne of Judah, and they're claiming, proclaiming him as king. So what does David do next? We'll look at the end of verse 4 and following. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, 
For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, do you remember what Jabesh Gilead did? There's a reason why he writes this letter. He's told that they were the ones that buried Saul, but it wasn't just that they buried him. It was that the Philistines had come through the battlefield and they'd seen Saul there dead. And they took Saul and they pinned his body to the wall at Bet-Shean, which was a, a fortress, a military outpost for the Philistines. They took control of it. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead snuck in and took Saul's body from the wall and gave it a proper burial, a more proper burial than being pinned to the wall. So they took a great risk to go into this city and pull his body down and actually give him a burial. And why did they do it? Because they understood that he was the king. And you don't treat the Lord's anointed that way. And so they took him down and they, they gave him a proper burial. So they, 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 it was at great risk to their life that they did that. But here, what do we find? But David is, once he finds out this information, he, in verse 5, sends messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and he says to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. So he's proclaiming on them the Lord's blessing. And what does he say in verse 6? Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. So David is proclaiming that he, as God's anointed king, is in lockstep with the Lord in giving a blessing to Jabesh Gilead. But what is the purpose for him sending messengers? He's just been anointed king over Judah, and he's sending this message to, to Jabesh Gilead. Now, you have to understand, the whole region of Gilead is to the east of the, of the Jordan River. So everything pretty much to the east, right there immediately to the east, is the land of Gilead. And one of the bigger cities in Gilead is Jabesh Gilead. So he's, it's basically like saying Birmingham, Alabama, or whatever. It's a city inside Gilead. And so he's writing to this nation that is far removed from him, that's off into, let's put it this way, enemy territory, that's in other tribes, that's outside the land. And he's asking them for their allegiance. That's what he's doing. And he's telling them, look at what he tells them in verse 7. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Why is he asking for their hands to be strong and valiant? Because to submit to him as king is going to take even more courage. We don't know the chronology of this passage, but I am betting you money right now that David knows that there is stirring in the midst of the nation a civil war brewing. And he understands that the people that he's writing to who honored and revered Saul are going to have to change their allegiance from the family of Saul to the family of David. And it's going to require perhaps not a relocation, but it's going to require in faraway places them devoting themselves in loyalty to David as king. So he's telling them, your hand must be strong and be valiant. The same courage that you showed to sneak into bet Shan and take Saul's body down and bury it, you're going to need double that in order to submit to me as king. 
but I would encourage you to do so. So he's encouraging them to demonstrate their courage yet again. But look at what happens in verse 8. We see the second thing that I want you to see here is that the enemy leads in stubborn defiance. So the king leads by divine guidance. The enemy leads in stubborn defiance. Notice what Abner does in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, that's an uncle to Saul, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Did you hear that? Listen to it again. And he made him king over, what is it? Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Do you notice something different about the behavior of Abner versus the behavior of David? David is, has already been anointed king by God through Samuel. He's already been told that he was the heir apparent. And before he presumes to take the throne or move anywhere out of Philistine country, what does he do? He goes before the Lord and he says, Do you want me to move somewhere? Yes, I want you to move somewhere. Where do you want me to move? I want you to go to Hebron. Okay, I'll go to Hebron. So he moves all of his family and all of his men's family all the way up to Hebron. Do you notice what Abner does when he anoints Ishbosheth king? Does he consult the Lord? Does he ask the Lord what he wants him to do? No. What do you think the Lord would tell him if he had gone to the Lord and he had said to the Lord, Hey, God, what do you want me to do? What do you think the Lord would have said to him? I want you to go down to Hebron and I want you to swear your allegiance to the person that I've anointed king in David. And I want you to go there right now. We know that, that Abner knows that David is supposed to be king. And we'll find that out in chapter 3 and we'll hear more of it next week. Abner knows full well that David has been established king and that he has been anointed by God. But instead, he turns to Saul's fourth oldest son. Not all of them died in battle. We get this one son here called to us in the text as Ishbosheth. But we also know that what his given name from birth was, was Eshbaal. You hear the name? Esh-baal. It sounds kind of like Esh, sounds a little bit like Ish. Esh, Ish. Baal sounds kind of like Bosheth. We find that out in 1 Chronicles 8.33 and 9.39 that Saul's fourth oldest son was named Esh-baal. But something happened in the process of God establishing kings and all the people's names who had the last name Baal got changed to Bosheth. See, the name Esh Baal means fire of Baal. Do you know who Baal was? Baal was a false god worshipped by the Philistines, many people in the Canaanite country and all throughout. It was a pagan god that many of the Israelites began to adopt. 
And you see that they began to adopt the worship of false gods because they named their kids names that ended in Baal. It's the same thing as when you see Hebrew names in the Old Testament that end in E-L. Normally that's a testimony to God that they worship. He is hearing from God. He's asking of God, Samuel. So Esh-Baal means fire from Baal. But at some point in the process where people began to worship Yahweh and fall under the reign of David, they scratched out the name Baal and they changed them to the name Bosheth. Bosheth means shame. Ish, instead of Esh, Esh means fire, Ish means man. So they changed his name from fire of Baal, which sounds fierce and terrifying, to man of shame. Abner goes to Eshbaal, or man of shame, Ishbosheth, and he anoints him king over Israel. So Israel not only is following somebody who was originally named after a false god paying tribute to Baal, but in all actuality is following a man of shame. Tells you what the author thinks of Abner's decision here. To anoint Ishbosheth as king. But in this, don't get it lost, Gilead also submits to Ishbosheth. That includes Jabesh Gilead. Now, if Jabesh Gilead was going to submit to Saul, to David, and, and we knew that, that would be clearly recorded here. And what is clearly not recorded is their submission to David. And what is clearly recorded is that all of Gilead submitted to Saul's heir. In fact, not only did all of Gilead, but all of Israel followed after Esh-Baal, or man of shame, Ishbosheth. There's no response to David's messengers. Nothing that gives any indication where they fall. Every indication that here is God's king sitting on God's throne asking for allegiance from people in faraway countries, Gentiles by all accounts, asking them to switch allegiances from the king that they once followed and the family that they once knew to submit to King David. And what do they get but rejection? But you understand that the sin of defiance has a long and storied history with mankind. In fact, defiance is the main characteristic of that black dog called sin that follows us everywhere we go. And what do we find in the New Testament but Jesus proclaiming to all who would listen, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm meek and lowly in heart and find rest for your souls. And that message goes out to faraway places, to places where Christ has not been named, through the mouths of missionaries who proclaim it, 
and it is proclaimed every Sunday in this pulpit here. And yet, what do we find but that that black dog of defiance and sin still follows us around everywhere we go? But what we often fail to realize... is that what the New Testament tells us is true. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers who want nothing more than to tear us apart and make frauds of us all. That black dog of sin will continue to follow us around everywhere we go. And what we fail to realize is how much of our spiritual warfare is just that, is spiritual warfare. That there is actively an enemy that is working against you. It's not only your flesh which seeks to pursue sin, but there is an enemy called Satan who is actively warring against you, tempting you and deceiving you, and he wants nothing more than to tear you apart. He wants nothing more than to make frauds of us all. And how does he do that? By making us defy the true King of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, who says to you, come to me, repent, believe, and yet every temptation within us says no. And that's not just the unbelieving. As believers, we fall prey to this time and again. Have you ever had bouts of anger or bitterness or strife or envy or lust or greed or pride or hatred or unbelief or gossip or slander? Have you time and again found yourself coming back to these same repeated sins over and over and over and over again? Have you been in churches that were torn apart by strife from people who would come into a worship service and who would sing all the same songs that we sing, who would read all the same scriptures that we read, listen to all the same sermons, take all the same notes, and yet leave from here and create nothing but angst and strife among the other Christians that they come in contact with? You ever been in churches like that? Have you ever dealt with lust? Coming into worship service after worship service, Sunday after Sunday, singing praise to God, hearing the scriptures read, going home and only to find that when you leave here, those same temptations follow you home. You open your computer screen on Monday or turn on your TV or open your phone, unlock your phone on Monday and you find the same temptations are plaguing you there. Do you ever wonder why that is? Why it is that you sit in here on Sunday after Sunday and you hear the gospel preached and you hear forgiveness of sin and you pray prayers of repentance and you say, Amen, Hallelujah, and you walk out that door and you find nothing has changed. Or what about hatred and slander 
Have you ever been in circles of church people who again hear the same songs, read the same sermons, and all they can do is bash people in the church when they gather together? Have you ever been around this? Have you ever been part of this? All that seems to come out of their mouth is slander and gossip. What about unbelief? Have you come into a worship service time and again, and you've heard the gospel preached over and over, and you continue to sit there going, I don't believe that. This has nothing for me. There's nothing here that I need to listen to. This is boring, it's mindless, and he keeps droning on and on and on. And it's so boring. Get me out of here, please. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's possible? Maybe, just maybe. The enemy of this world your enemy, Satan himself, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. You think it's possible that that bout of dreariness and sleepiness when you come into a church service hits you all of a sudden like a wave? You think it's possible, maybe, just maybe, you're being deceived? You're being tempted to that end? You think it's possible that when you leave here and you go home and you find all the things that you thought and decided and were motivated towards in the worship service, they don't seem to penetrate the threshold of your household? Do you ever think maybe, just maybe, there's an enemy actively working against you there? See, Satan is quite happy for you to be in a room singing praise to God, go on. Sing the praise all you want. Pray as many prayers as you would like. Read as many scriptures as you like. When you leave that church building, you take as many cuts around the country as you want to. You drive in circles in the roundabout. You take every shortcut you can possibly imagine, every long cut you can possibly imagine. And when you pull into the driveway, I'm going to be right there on your doorstep like a black dog. And those same temptations are going to follow you there. Let me ask you something. When we leave... And we gather in our communities and we slander everybody we can think about. And we gossip over people and we tear down every person that we can think of. When we go home and we access the same things that we were accessing before. Does that remind you of people who are submitting to Christ as king or those who are submitting to defiance? To Ishbosheth, to the man of Baal, the man of shame. Which does it sound more like? When it comes to submitting to Christ, what does it actually look like? Going to war is what it looks like. 
doing intentional battle with all of the things that would be produced in our heart that would be defiance to Christ. What the author of 2 Samuel is laying out here is a condition that is just as much a part of us as it was all of Israel. That we want nothing more than to be in defiance to God's anointed king. I want nothing more than to reject him. But see, we come in here and call ourselves a church, but maybe we don't even give thought to what defiance of Christ actually looks like. Because we would never define defiance as coming into a worship service and singing songs, praying prayers, reading scripture, hearing sermons. No, defiance are the people out there that don't even come into church. Actually, that's not true. Defiance is the people that have taken the black dog of sin and made it a pet. You pet it, you're kind to it, and you never give thought to the fact that you actually may be in defiance to the resurrected Christ. It's impossible. I'm a Christian. There never seems to be that inclination in your heart to turn from that sin. Any identification that that's it. I don't want you to leave this text. I don't want you to leave this room without fully realizing that you can take your Lord's Supper all you want you can sing your favorite songs. You can even be convicted by various things in the text of Scripture. You can even be convicted for someone else. You ever have that? Conviction for someone else? Oh man, I, 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 I know he needs to hear this. I wish he was here. He would really benefit from this. You can be convicted for someone else. You can sing all your songs you want. But at some point you have to realize that the civil war going on is inside you. There is a very real enemy that we have to do battle with every single week, every single day. And it's a battle over sin. And as long as you're fighting against it through confession and repentance, and you're bearing fruit of the Lord's kingdom, you're following Christ. But when that black dog becomes your pet and you fail to recognize this is sin and I need to get out of it, you've taken opposition to Christ. So the charge is the same to you as it was to the people of Jabesh Gilead. Let your hands be strong and be valiant. The dog is dead. Submit to Jesus. See, the good news of the gospel is even if that dog has become your pet, Jesus will still be your Savior. Own it. Confess it to Him. 
Repent of your sin and continue to trust in Christ for forgiveness. You go home and that same temptation is there. You confess that that temptation is there. You confess your desire to seek it. You call your friends, you call your family members that will encourage and edify you. You call your church alongside you to help and to pray. You go to battle with the enemy. 